rest of the table, would you make sure to stand back there at the end of service so people will know where you're going to be? Jack and Travis, I know you'll already be back there. But, man, if you've got an encouraging word for these folks, a prayer you want to give, something, please do that because uh, they're, they're, they're folks who are, who are doing what we all uh, want to do, what we all do every day. They're just, just kind of raising the bar a little bit. So that's my intro right there to the sermon. God using people to raise the bar. And so today, the title of the message is, uh, I've got a secret. Now, it's not my secret. It's Paul's secret. And, uh, you know, I, I, I guess uh, to take into context what we just saw and the words we just heard, the folks we just prayed for, um, th- there's a way to level up in your faith, a way to move higher, to stand stronger in Christ, to accomplish more in his name and in his power. And we'll talk more about that as we get through the message. But today we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. And if you can turn there, the verses are going to be on the screen. It's probably on the U version, those different apps uh, that we have set up. But the, I guess I want, to, I want to approach this first to set this up. Have you ever felt like an outsider? I used to uh, run McDonald's restaurants and... At that time, about 60% of my employees were Latino, Hispanics, and so forth, and they didn't speak English very well. And because of that, now I can, if you ever need a hamburger ordered in Spanish, I got you covered. <laughs> I can totally do it. Any way you want to do it, I can do that, okay? Now, if you want to meet someone, say hi, I can't help you. But if you, if you want a hamburger, <laughs> hamburguesa con queso, I got you covered, Okay. The thing is, often when people encounter folks that are speaking a different language than they are, they typically get insecure and feel like they're talking about you, and they are. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Totally just kidding. And so, yeah, it's true, only about me. But the, uh, the thing is, that feeling that you have, that outsider feeling, where people are doing things and you don't know what's going on, you can't participate in. It's kind of the world we live in likes to make outsiders. And no one likes to be marginalized. Nobody likes to be dismissed, stereotyped, labeled, and then dismissed. No one likes that. And so when we come into Colossians, and we've already talked about this, what God's writing to these Christians, how he's given them a basis, how Jesus Christ is enough for them. And then he's trying to encourage them to another level, take up their game, so to speak. They're already loving people. They're already a golden example of what it means to follow Christ. And he's trying to tell them, keep the main thing, the main thing, and level it up. Not get distracted by other things and and fall down, but keep the main thing, the focus on Christ, and then step up into that. So today we want to step up into that, and, and Paul has a secret for that. Verse 24, Colossians chapter 1. Here we go. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God's given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it's been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is a secret. This is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God's given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. 
I want you to know how much I've agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who've never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. For though I am far away from you, my heart is with you. And I rejoice that you are living as you should and that your faith in Christ is strong. Man, Colossians is a good book. You like the book? 16. That's good. That's a pretty good number. Let's begin. Paul has a secret. The secret's Christ lives in you. So let's walk first down this path right here. Christ will live in anyone who believes. Let's start there. Let's start with the core, the basis of the gospel. Christ will live in anyone who believes. Now that may sound pretty common and ordinary to you. I mean, many of you have gone to church some and you are familiar with Christ's love for you or you know that God loves you. But what you don't know is that when Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, this was still a brand new idea. The idea that God would live in a a Gentile. Because Paul grew up a Jew himself. And in the Jewish mindset, Gentiles were scurvy dogs. They were were the worst. I mean, they were just fueled for the flames of hell in the Jewish mind. And I know that sounds crude, but that's nowhere near as crude as the racism that was in the Jewish mindset toward the Gentiles at this point in time. And so here's Paul, who was raised, taught, trained a Jew, coming along and saying, hey, here's the deal. Here's the secret. The secret's this. Christ lives in you, and he will live in any Gentile who will believe. He will live in any Jew who will believe. Race, no longer an issue. All it takes to enter into and receive that is is the believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. Now that's good news. That good news is for everyone who believes. Let me give you a passage out of Romans 3.22. Romans 3.22 says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. So Christ will live in anyone who believes. So do you believe. That's really the foundational question that has to be answered in this lifetime. you got to get this answer right before your tombstone goes up, before your last breath goes out. You've got to decide, do I believe in Jesus Christ or the opposite of that? And you can put any label you want on it. You can throw another religion on it. You can, you can whatever course you want on it. But the only other option to that is, or believe in me. Do I believe in me to save me? That's... That's really the choice of the gospel. That is really the purpose of every other religion is a, to provide a way for you to save you. But they don't work. You may die calmly, but you'll still die lost unless you believe in Jesus. So you need to understand, believing in Jesus Christ is an extreme change. You are basically dethroning you. Please understand this. Believing Jesus isn't like, oh, cool. Jesus is cool. He's hip. He's got long hair and, you know, pasty-looking white guy. Sorry, that was funny to me on the inside. And I realized coming out that wasn't so great. But 
By the way, he was a Jew. Uh, I don't know why pictures of Jesus make him a white, Caucasian, Texan, blue-eyed guy, but uh, he was a Jewish Middle Eastern man. And um, so anyway, <clears throat> I have to get to this point where I realize that I cannot be my own God. And I, if I try and add Jesus into my life, and basically he's just some kind of accessory, like a, a ticket, a wristband to get me through the gate into heaven, I'm totally missing the point. To believe in Jesus is to enthrone him as Lord of your life. Does that make sense? Give me a nod. Now, if it doesn't make sense, I'll be at the back door. I shake him in, shake him up, shake him down, shake him out. <laughs> shake him in, shake him up with the teeth, then shake him down, take an offering, and shake him out. So, um, just kidding. It's an old bad joke. <clears throat> I'll be back there. You holler at me, and we'll talk, and I, I'll, help, I'll show this to you more clearly. Michael will. There's so many people here that can help you with that. Okay? Now, then I put him on the throne of my life. Anyone who, who believes in Jesus, he will come and live in their life, right? Then what? Then we are the body of Christ. Does that make sense? When I believe in Jesus and he is on the throne of my life, now I no longer go to church. I is the church. Okay? I get people tell me this all the time, okay? And if, this, if you say this, Suck it up, it's going to sting. Just kidding. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's true. You have to be the church to be a Christian. If you aren't the church, and, and let me follow that up with, Jesus did say, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together through Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, I'm sorry, in Hebrews 12. And so <clears throat> the idea of being the church and not gathering with the church is not a God idea. That's a worldly idea. Okay? No. I know. Churches are hard. Believe it or not, Jesus wants them to be. Why? Because we're proud. And he uses other people to humble us so that we can better be drawn into his presence. That may be a hard thing to swallow, but it's true. Now, we are one body in Christ now. Did you get that? We are, we together are one body in Christ. Now, I don't want to lose my way. It happens sometimes. I had a thought I didn't want to lose it. There it went. So there can't be in this room, in this body, can't be stuff like racism. We can't alienate people, even because of their sins. If Jesus had alienated us because of our sins, we would be lost. Does that make sense? So there's no room for, for that kind of fear-mongering and all those kinds of things in the body of Christ. By the way, we have one thing in common, and his name is Jesus Christ. You know, it's cool when bikers get together and have fellowships and do things and are biker Christians. That's cool. As long as the Christian, the Christian, is first. I can fellowship with you because you follow Christ, not because you're a biker. If I start to dismiss people because they are not something that I am, I have made the church into a faction. That's what Paul wrote against in his letters to the church at Corinth. I've started to separate us into, well, that's their clique and their clique. So the idea of cliques and people clumping up, birds of a feather flocking together, that is a worldly idea. That's a product of the corruption of sin. That's not a product of the redemption of the cross. Does that make sense? 
So when I put Jesus on the throne of my life, I move into the body of Christ. Christ is the head of that body. According to what Paul says in Colossians 1 and 2, he's the head of that body. Now we're all unified because we're all connected to Christ. That's our unity. And nothing else. I really don't need anything else in common with you to love you like crazy and serve you. And you don't need anything else in common with me to love me like crazy and serve me. Granted, I might be harder to love than you, but the simple truth is, because of Christ, we are one. Amen? We are brought together in that oneness under him. All because Christ, when we believe in him, we come into, or he comes and lives inside of us. He becomes dead and we become his body. Then we also realize that no matter what, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. Okay, I'm gonna open a can of worms now. Let me read a passage first. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Pretty familiar with it, I bet. God saved you by his grace when you believed. Woo! And you can't take credit for this. Woo! If I could make it, I could break it. So I need something God made that I can't break, okay? God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. A gift, do you earn a gift? All you can do is receive a gift. Keep that word receive in mind. We'll come back to it. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about salvation. None of us can boast in it, this work that we've done. We're saved by grace. So I hear a lot of Christians say this, and I'm going to tweak it a little bit, so don't get mad because you're going to get scared, okay? Often we will say as believers, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And that is true in the past tense. Because when Jesus comes to live in you, do you think Jesus would come and live in a sinner? Would he come and live in someone who's defiled and broken and dirty? No, he comes and lives in someone who's been redeemed and who's pure and who's white as snow. That's why Paul said in chapter 1 of Colossians that we are guiltless and holy and blameless before him without a single fault. That's the only place Jesus can live. So what are you now? Here's the question. Once you come to Jesus Christ, you put Jesus on the throne. Are you a sinner saved by grace? Yes, in the past tense. But now you are a saint redeemed for a purpose. I have moved from a sinner saved by grace to a saint redeemed for a purpose now. What's the difference? What does it matter? If I always see myself as a sinner, then I'm always going to give myself permission to sin. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I can cheat on my taxes. After all, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I can mistreat my wife and kids because after all, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. We need to adjust that thinking. We need to realize, yes, I'm a sinner saved by grace because now, because I'm a sinner saved by grace, I'm a saint saved for, redeemed for a purpose. And when I start to see myself as a saint redeemed for a purpose, well, a saint... A saint doesn't mistreat his wife. A a, a saint doesn't cheat on his taxes. He obeys the laws, Romans 13. I know that was really uncomfortable for some of you right there. Some saints even obey the speed limit. (laughs) That's weird. My point is, if you always see yourself as a sinner saved by grace, you're always going to give yourself permission to fail. But if you start to see yourself as a saint redeemed for a purpose, you're going to see yourself as empowered to not just succeed, but to change things. And that's what we need. 
Jesus fills people for a purpose, but that's later in this message. So anyone who believes can be filled. Jesus will come and live in anyone who believes. Second point, the heart of the message is Christ himself. This is so critical. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is the focus of it. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's one answer. His name is Jesus, regardless of what the problems are. And so the, the, we must never lose that the, the core of the issue, the message, is Jesus himself. This matters because it's so easy to try and live life in head knowledge and intellectually. And what do I mean by that? Jesus said once to a group of Pharisees, Pharisees were smart. They knew the Old Testament cover to cover. They had most of it memorized, okay? When it came to knowing God's word, no one knew it like a Pharisee, certainly not you or me. And Jesus said to him in Matthew 15, 8, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far. How does this relate? Jesus Christ is the gospel. Jesus Christ comes and lives in us. Jesus Christ wants our heart. If he gets our heart, he'll get our mind. If he gets our emotions and our passion and our desire, he will get the righteousness from us that we were designed and empowered to live in, the right things. So I asked myself a question as I was chewing on the sermon. I said, can a person intellectually, rationally, and reasonably live for Christ? I think it's a good question to ask in the postmodern age. In this day and age where uh, so many things drive us and also so much of faith today comes from the habits and rituals of the modern age, the intellectual age, the age of reason. And now I've moved from the age of reason into the age of experience. Now you can look at that as a bad thing or a good thing. I look at it as a good thing. So I, so I asked myself this question, could Dr. Spock be a Christian? From Star Trek, not the guy who talked about child discipline, the other one. <laughs> my dad used to say, I'm sorry, this doesn't mean to be offensive, but it's a joke my dad says, so get mad at him, I'll give you his number. He said, a lot of these kids, they need to be spanked, not spocked. <laughs> so, my dad said that, my dad said that. Because <laughs> Spock, I mean, so that idea, though, of everything being completely rational, could, it, could, it, could you be a Christian in that realm? And so... Uh, Mm, there's so much intellectual evidence for Jesus. The Bible is, I mean, it is like a, a rational, intellectual masterpiece, really. I mean, it's just the way it ties. It's, this book is a beautiful piece of intellectual literature from cover to cover. It's amazing. Not everyone can see it because they, you have to know the author to get the intellect, to get the reasoning behind it. So, on one hand, I'm saying, well, yeah. I mean, the cross, actually, the cross doesn't make sense, does it? That God would become a man? God would become creation? Die for us on a cross? And through losing, win? That doesn't make sense. What? And so then, so then obviously my little tirade began to fall apart because then I'm thinking of Peter. 
Peter's like a fisherman. Peter knew more Bible than any of us, and he wasn't even in the religious, religious echelons of society. He was just a fisherman, just a blue-collar guy. And, and you, you read his sermon out of Acts chapter 2, and it's just buried deep in Old Testament scripture. He knew the word. But prior to Acts chapter 2, prior to the falling of the Holy Spirit on God's people, the baptism of the Holy Ghost, prior to that, was intellectual, redneck, brawny, tough. Peter, was he a reasonable, rational guy? With all his reasonable reason and rationing, ration, I don't think that works, but anyway, just pretend like it did. With all of that, what, did he, what was he able to accomplish? Well, he couldn't, he couldn't pray for an hour, fell asleep. He, 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 he told Jesus, who had just, he just declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then he turned around and started to tell God what to do because what God was telling him he was gonna do didn't make sense to Peter, and it didn't make sense, so Peter thought he would correct him, and then he gets to the cross, the night of the cross, and he knows that this is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and yet he says, I don't know the man. He's, a, he's afraid of this little barmaid kind of girl, servant girl. He's terrified of her and can't, then Acts 2 happened. And from Acts 2 on, you get a completely irrational Peter from that point. What do I mean? You understand that in Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up and pointed that calloused fisherman's finger in the face of the Pharisees and the people who had just crucified Christ and condemned them before God and the nation for crucifying the Messiah sent by God. In public square before Jerusalem, all of a sudden this guy who was afraid of a barmaid is now unafraid of anybody. That's not rational. Then a few days later, he's walking through town and there's a lame guy laying on the side of the street. Peter walks up to him and says, hey, dude. That's what it says in the Greek. Dude's in Greek. Dude or something like that. Okay, it's not. I'm just kidding. Hey, dude. Get up and walk. That makes sense, right? Then he goes and meets a little girl who's dead. She's not sick. She's dead. No, not a little girl, woman. Sorry, confused. Thank you. She's dead, laying on a bed, and he says, get up. None of those things are rational. What's my point? Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 that the Christian faith is not rational. I'm not saying there aren't intellectual pieces to it. I'm not saying that there are not amazing rational truths that you can discover and share. I'm just saying that the power of God's word is deeper than your itty-bitty brain understands. God works at another level, far infinitely above anything you could ever think, hope, or dream up, or ask. Okay? So this is so important for us to understand because Christ will come, he will live in anyone who asks, but he himself is the core of the message. Paul said it in verse 27, this is the secret, Christ lives in you. What amazes me about the disciples of Jesus is that one day they're cowards and the next day they're acting just like Jesus. That's what the baptism of the Holy Ghost is all about. That's the core of it. It's Jesus coming to live in us. Why? So you can be cool, popular, and successful? No. Jesus is coming back. 
to complete his ministry in you. Oh, that's so good. Is that okay with you? Is that okay with you? Because if you think about it, what we're saying is, God, I want to be possessed by you. You've seen enough horror movies to know what it is to be demon-possessed, right? What if you're God-possessed? What if you are, are just a glove and God is the hand to move in your life? What if that's what Jesus wants to do in your life? What if it's not about how much money you make or how much you get saved for, retire, for retirement or how well your kids do or how successful they are? What if that's not even your purpose at all? What if your real purpose is to make Christ famous what if your real job as a parent is to teach your children not just about Christ, but how to obey Christ? What if discipleship isn't knowledge as much as it is applied knowledge through action? Does that make sense? Christ, man, it's all about him. It's not about me. The third slide I want to share with you is the realization that an authentic and a personal faith can give believers complete confidence. Authentic and personal faith can give believers complete confidence. So I'm gonna word this the Michael way. God wants to be in relationship with you. Some of you think God's mad at you. Some of you think you're in trouble with him a lot. Some of you think that he's messing with your life and making it harder on you. Some of you think he doesn't care that he's not involved at all. Some think that. Some of you are struggling about whether or not there even is a God. That's a normal challenge to have, especially if you're in those late teens moving into your 20s. So here's the thing. I mean, if God had an enemy, if he had an enemy who hated him, and he was really good at lying, what kind of lies would he tell? Would he tell lies like, hey, there is no God? Would he, would he say, hey, there's a God, but he doesn't love you? Hey, there's a God, but he doesn't care. Are those the kind of lies that the, an enemy of God would share and propagate and move around in the world? Those are lies, man. God loves you. The only real evidence I need is the cross of Jesus Christ. If that doesn't prove to you God's love, nothing will. I know what it's like. From my heart, guys, I know what it's like to walk through life, struggle with God, struggle with his love, struggle with it, whether or not he cares about me. I know that struggle. And I know what it's like to walk through that same life and just decide it's easier just to not deal with it. That is not what God wants for you. God wants to be not just a part of your life. He wants to be with you in everything. We need to start believing. This is back to the belief thing. Your beliefs change your life. You understand this, right? You don't live, I mean, you actually live what you believe. You can say what you believe all day long, but what you live, that's what you believe. Where you spend your time, that's what you believe. Where you spend your money, that's what you believe. What you actually practice, those are your beliefs. You can spout whatever but you live what you actually believe. I'm telling you God loves you. The challenge is to step into that and start living in it. 
The Bible says in Colossians 2.2, Paul wrote, it said, I I want you to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. He wants us knit together with, with his love. So God wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to love you. He wants to hold you up. He wants to help you through what you're dealing with right now. And he wants to use all of you to do it. I guess I should throw that in there, right? I mean, just think about how beautiful that could be if all of us were just gloves and God was the hand. And God wanted to love April over here who's trying desperately to run the slides, but I keep throwing her curves. And maybe, maybe one of us is the one who is the glove on the hand of God today that says, hey, April, I love you. Thanks for what you're doing. I just want to bless you. Maybe I want to pray for you. Jackie and Travis, man, I'm telling you, to go through what they just went through is a challenge to your faith. But there's a hand of God and a a whole bunch of gloves in this room that wants to lay hands on them and pray for them and hold them up and, and, and declare a new vision over them or a strong vision over them. Does that make any sense? I'm just saying, God wants that relationship in your life so that you and him can go do cool stuff together. What's the cool stuff? Righteousness. I'm a big fan of righteousness and other people. (laughs) Why? Righteousness changes the world. I I can see people that are displaying the righteousness of God beginning to make a difference in our community and in our world. I can see it ending human trafficking. I can see it ending divorce. I can see it ending the abuse that goes on, the addiction that goes on in our world. I can see it. God wants to do these things through the righteousness that he operates in our lives. He wants wants to love this world through you. So let me make two qualifiers before I get into how to apply all these random thoughts that I've shared this morning. One, Christians are righteous. Christ followers are righteous. But they are not righteous to become Christ followers. They follow Christ and he makes them righteous. Get the order right. Some of you are trying to clean up your life before you come to God and that ain't gonna work. Okay? God's going to make you right before you live right. Second thing. A lot of you have taken journeys of serving God and you've gotten burned out over the years. Okay? So I want to adjust that thought as well. We've adjusted a few thoughts today. We've adjusted sinners saved by grace into people who have been redeemed for a purpose. Saints redeemed for a purpose. Now we've adjusted that idea of whatever I just said just a second ago. And now... Smooth, wasn't it? Now let me adjust this other idea. A lot of you have tried serving God. That's cool. I appreciate it. It's a fast way to burn out. What I want to encourage you to do is to serve your Father. There's a difference between a servant serving God and a son serving his Father. One has no authority. One is just a servant fulfilling orders, and that is a depressing reality. 
They say one of the most discouraging things in America or in the workforce is people who do the same job over and over again with no purpose. And so that's exactly what serving God for the sake of serving is. It's purposeless serving. You have no power, no authority in the situation. But when you serve God as a son serving a father, because that's what you are, a, a, a child serving the father, now you are in the authority of the household. Does that make sense? You're moving in a new realm now. You're doing stuff not just because it needs done, but because your father desires it done. And he's a good father. Okay? Big thoughts, big thought adjustments. So now we've talked about Jesus Christ. He'll live in anyone. He's the core and the message of the gospel. Now, how do we, how do we make this work? How do we apply this? So I just want to give you three steps and I'm done. Okay, and you'll be like, wow, he was done in less than an hour and a half. It's a miracle. <laughs> Mackle the miracle guy. One, if you're going to live in relationship with God and experience what it is to have the power of Jesus inhabiting you, First thing it's going to take, number one, it's going to take time. Time. The stuff life is made of. They're not making any more of it. You get the same every day that I get. 24 hours. If you had 30 hours a day, you'd ruin them too. So stop asking for more. Just that 24 hours a day. If you're going to have a real relationship with God that's more than just going to church and just a one-day-a-week thing that's an, actually an extra burden on your life, that's what it is for a lot of people. That's why they keep dropping out, guys. If you're going to do that, you have to make time for that relationship. Could your marriage survive on the time you give God? Could your, kids, your relationship with your kids survive on the time that you give God. How do I give God time? You spend time in his word. You spend time praying. You spend time in worship. You spend time with a small group or with a mentor. You spend time working in and enjoying your father and working on your faith. It takes time. If you're not willing, if you don't have time to do that, if you don't have time to do that, what I would do if I were you is I would back up and make sure my defining moment was actually legit. If you're having a hard time loving things that are of God, then there might be a problem in which your heart has not been changed. I don't mean to be harsh, but that's the simple reality that a new heart gives you new desires. Okay? So that's what I would do. If I don't have time for God, then I would back up and make sure that I had actually put him on the throne of my life. Okay? Two, I gotta make time. Two, I gotta learn trust. This is a Bible. That reminds me of that Vince Lombardi speech when he, when he first went to the Packers and they were having a horrible, they were just a horrible team and he holds up a football very first session and says, hey, this is a football Basically, he was trying to say, we're getting back to the basics. And then one of the linemen raised his hand and said, hey, could you slow it down a little bit? <clears throat> this is a Bible. It is as anti-cultural as anything out there. It's, it's revolutionary. It's inflammatory to the, the colonized American, Western world, Eastern world, the whole world mind. This thing is different. 
This presents a whole new way to live. When you come here on Sunday, when I teach you how to live and how to handle finances or parents or marriage we're getting into in September, it all comes out of here and it's not socially acceptable for the most part. I'll, I'll throw that out there, okay? <laughs> Why? Because it presents a way of life that is anti-cultural or at least countercultural. It's very different from the norms that are out there. So you have a problem. If I'm going to follow Christ, he's on the throne of my life. This is the book that tells me all about him. I have to learn to trust it. Not just the words on this page, but the whole, what the Holy Spirit does with that word once it's in me. Does that make sense? So I've got to make time. If I don't make time, there is something wrong. And if I, if I don't start trusting the Bible, let me, let me throw this out there for free. Trust the Bible even when things go totally south when you do. And I will throw this out for free. That will happen. Come on, read the Bible itself. Read the story of Moses. What happened when he actually stepped to the plate and said, okay, God, I'll do what you want me to do. Things got worse. Really bad. Trusting God is never about the circumstances you're in, guys. God will come through. He will save. He is a saving God. But sometimes he'll scare you to death in the process. So I got to make time. I got <clears throat> to learn trust. And then I got to stay. Stay. Jesus said, abide in me. In John chapter 15, don't give up, don't walk away, don't quit, stay. Peter once said to Jesus at the end of John chapter 6, if, if you want to be freaked out about who Jesus is, read John 6 because it's a freaky chapter. Yes, the feeding of the 5,000 is in there, but there's also some other things. When, Jesus, when John's record gets in the chapter, everybody's gone. The 5,000 plus wives and kids, they all left. For a lot of reasons, which I don't have time to go into. They all left him, and all it is is just the few disciples. And Jesus looks at the boys, as I like to call them. And says, guys, are you going to leave too? And Peter... For all the stuff he knew and didn't know, and for all his big mouth and failures, every now and then he could hit one out of the park. And Peter spoke up and said, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And I, I think what he was thinking was, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I know they're the words of life. I think that's what he meant in John 6. And that's the way it is with God's word, with Christian faith, with prayer. Sometimes you're not going to know what's going on. You're not going to know what God is up to. Some of you are right there now. You're at this zone in your life. God, what are you doing? And you, you got to get to that place like David who said, though he slay me, I will trust him. My point, make time, learn to trust, and stay. Stay. God wants to be in relationship with every one of you. His son inhabits the heart of every believer in this room. That's how much he wants to be with you. He wants to be with you so much, he moved into you. And there he is right now. And I don't know about you, but I know me. And me, 
gets distracted. Me likes to worry. Me likes to try and figure things out for me. And what God has been teaching me my whole life is I'm really not good at doing life anyway. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have the perspective that he has. I don't have the time frame that he has. I don't have the knowledge that he has. And so God invites me to rest in him and introduces that as the most difficult work of the Christian life. Strive to enter that rest, the writer of Hebrews put it. When you read that text in Hebrews 4, and here's a guy writing, to strive, work hard, to really press into rest? It's because he's completely capturing the challenge of the Christian life because the hardest thing for us to do is to get our hands off that wheel. Stop controlling, conniving, manipulating, whatever it is we do to try and keep control of our lives, knowing all the while we don't have any control. My dad told me when I first started driving, he said, son, this is a 2,000-pound vehicle, even more when you're sitting in it. And I know you feel like going down the road that you have got all this power at your control, but you don't. And one day you will learn that all this power is actually in charge and you have no control at all. And about two weeks later, I had my first car wreck. And I realized that things can go sideways fast. But not for God. He knows what's coming. You know, the great thing about this is how simple it makes life. My focus in life has to be Jesus Christ, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. It has to be. You know why? My wife, as far as human relationship goes, the most important relationship is my relationship with her. The second is with my children. In a few weeks, I'll get into why I prioritize them in that way. But that's my first relationship. But let me tell you this. She needs more than I have. I I can be a husband to her. I can provide for her. I can do a lot of things for her. I can't understand her. I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm just reality. My guy brain, her feminine brain, not the same place. She needs Jesus more than me. Because Jesus gets her. You understand? Now, flipping that around, she doesn't get me either. I'll never know as a man why men are a mystery to women. We're, I think we're pretty simple. Feed us, put us down for a nap, we're good. <laughs> but the truth is, she can never be Jesus to me. What my wife needs from me is not a guy who's trying to be the best husband he could be. What my wife needs for me, is a guy who's been trying to be the best Christ follower he can be. Because when I am following Christ, now I'm just a glove. And he's the hand. And he knows how to love my wife. And there are days that he will love her through me, and it will be just what she needed, and, and she will be, her sail will be filled, and I'll be standing there going, wow, that's cool, I have no idea what happened. It's true. Same with my children. I mean, I would love to tell you. I mean, if I could, I, I should, 
you know, after eight boys, you'd think there ought to be a book in that and possibly I could retire on more than Alpo one day, you know, but you know, just, you would think that. But the truth is, how'd you raise these kids? And I'm like, I don't know. I am just as clueless now with six, seven, and eight at home as I was with the day that Clay was born, my oldest son. I, I, I got no idea. I don't know how to be a great dad or even a good one. I do know that if I can pursue Christ, he can change me. He can make my meager resources accomplish infinite things because he's God and I'm just the glove and life is easy as a glove think about this life is easy as a glove you're no longer trying to figure it out and pressing and striving now you're just receiving because that's all a glove does is just wait for the hand to fill it and then the hand will do it so so just think about life as a glove maybe that's what I should have named the sermon life as a glove Just think about the rest in that. It doesn't mean we do nothing. It means we do everything we do with the power of God rather than our meager resources is what it means. So it means I move from rest. Oh, another thing it means, and this is my favorite part, and then then I'll probably be done. Probably. It also means that I no longer have problems. Life as a glove means I only have promises. Think about that for a minute. This book, one of the things it's just known for and loved, and people, people like to pull them all out and make their own book of Bible promises. I really don't like taking them out of context, but this book is loaded with promises. And when you start to understand and embrace those promises... Holy Spirit begins to speak them into your heart and you begin to realize that in this problem I have, this isn't a problem. This is just an opportunity for God's promise to manifest. This is an opportunity for the next miracle to show up. We don't have problems. We have promises. I'll never leave you or forsake you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Everything is possible to those who believe. Father, I, um, I don't know if I got the point across, but I know that you're good. I know that you love me and you love us. I know that our lives, as difficult and challenging as they are, according to the preacher in Ecclesiastes, are really just us waiting on God to provide promises, to give power, to accomplish righteousness in us. Father, I pray that you would bring up out of us this challenge toward us to make time for God, to learn to trust God's word and God's Holy Spirit, to learn to be obedient and to stay, to stay with you, to stop getting pulled off into meaningless things and distracted by this world and its stuff. Lord, I know in this house, there's, I'm praying that God spoke to somebody and they realized, hey, I, I gotta fix my schedule. Somebody may have realized that they never really had placed their faith in you. Others may need prayer. They got 
things that are going on. They just don't know what to do. And they don't know how to rest either because the enemy's really good at stealing our rest through lies. Well, Lord, as I appreciate the act of worship you give us. I appreciate the fact that you've raised up men and women in this church who are willing to minister to others through prayer. And so, Lord, I pray that every soul that's here that is at a new, new crossroad today, I pray they would not leave until they have had someone minister to them in prayer. I pray that they'll come forward during the song and they'll have the courage to do that. And I pray, Lord, for wisdom on those who are doing the praying today, that you would take them right to the heart of the issue, help them to know what they cannot know. And Lord, please don't let anybody leave this place today confused, lost, alone, broken. Lord, heal this body. Thank you. Thank you for being so good. And I just, I want to speak that word good. God's goodness, God's love. Let it settle on us. In Jesus' name, let's stand.